First comes love, then comes marriage, then comes what? Welcome to Then Comes What, a monthly show where we open up everything you wanted to know and some things you didn't about love, sex, marriage, children, manhood, womanhood, and more. Welcome to Then Comes What. This is Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient host. We're here with Jacob Menzel, Pastor Jacob Menzel. How are we doing, Jake? Good. How are you? Fantastic. Happy to be here. We've also got Pastor Tim Bailey, as always. How are we doing, Tim? And Pastor Max Carell. Hello. Today, we are talking about family and the church. What should the relationship of your family be to the church? What should it be? What is it for most people? And how can they take it from what it is to what it should be? Let's just start with big, broad question. Well, for me, I think that was one of the two major lessons my father taught us as children, and that was that he loved the church. The other one is he loved God's Word, but he loved the church. And so all of our lives, although he never spoke of it as a principle. He never spoke of it doctrinally. He just demonstrated constantly that he loved the church. It was just the most, one of the most important things in his life. It was completely non-negotiable. There was a time when I was a very small child, but I have five older siblings. There was a time that my father, he had been in, in the faith for a while, but he came to a point where Uh, he was convicted about the activities of our family and how they were in competition with church attendance. So, for instance, he was was in business with a friend who together they raised quarter horses, and they would show quarter horses at horse shows. And there was a lot of money involved. Horses, that whole business of showing horses is a big business. Uh, My family was aggressively involved in it. And all of the horse shows, or a good number of the horse shows, happened on Sunday. And a day came when my father realized that his children weren't in church, his family was not in church on Sunday. So he made the decision that he was going to get out of the business of showing horses, which he loved horses. And I think he enjoyed the shows, although I am I was pretty young when it was happening. But he loved the business, he loved horses, and, but he loved the church, and he loved God, and he wanted to relegate mm. horse shows, anything that was in competition for going to church on Sunday. And so he went to his partner, and he said, buy me out. And he lost, I think, a substantial amount of money by that fire sale happening. But his family went to church. And in the aftermath of that, I mean, I have uh, there are four of us who are pastors— a brother-in-law who's a pastor, a brother who's been a Christian uh, school superintendent and a Christian as a school superintendent in the public schools. There is a lot of fruit to my father's commitment to making God primary in his life that I'm very thankful for. So that's the story. Should the church be the the primary thing for a family? Is it the number one priority? Well, no, God needs to be the number one priority. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven— but I mean, how do you separate? When disciples are converted in the book of Acts, 
they give themselves to four things right away as a part of this is what it means, what it looks like to be a disciple. And it's they give themselves to the preaching and teaching of the apostles, fellowship of the church, breaking of bread or the Lord's Supper, and the prayers, which it would be the corporate worship of the people of God. That's what they give themselves to. That's how they grow. That's how the church multiplies. But that's what they all devote themselves to. And then they, they bring their money and they share it with anyone who has need. And so right away in the book of Acts, to become a Christian is to have a radical reorientation of your life, just not just around God in some uh, nebulous sense, but around the people of God, around the church. And that is how you grow in faith. But, but you don't ever want to think in terms of uh, utility, because that destroys pastors' children. It destroys people, because you don't ever love something that's useful. What you love is something that you die without, and mm -hmm. that has to be what we find. I was sitting here listening to you, David, talk about your dad, and you use the word love over and over again. But then in your description, I was fearful that people listening would think that your father was just one more good Christian who wanted to be able to show everybody his family in the pews with him showing up Sunday morning. And that's not love. And that kind of thing it's so unworthy of the bride of Christ. When I think about what it is that gives me faith, I, I have a hard time separating it from the church of Jesus Christ. Wherever I go, there are souls who have asked God to show them their sin and therefore are humble and therefore love one another. And that's the church of Jesus Christ. And that's not something that's just useful. It is useful. We do grow. Uh, the church does change our diapers. It washes us with the word. It disciplines us. It encourages us. But I don't think any word other than love really fits Christ's relationship to his bride. And therefore, every son, his heart follows the, fa the heart of his father. And so it's not accidental that all of Max's dad's sons love the church as he loved the church. And of course, we're just following Jesus Christ. What he loves, we love. The people he loves, we love. I don't think we talk enough about love of the church. Um, so I'm, I don't mean to disagree with you. You weren't using the word utility, but I don't want people ever to think that the reason that I love the church is because I get paid to be a pastor. I would be doing what I'm doing with great joy, regardless of whether or not I got paid. And I think every pastor needs to have that clear of a conscience that it's for love. And I think that in the vast majority of cases where you have the occupational hazard of pastors, which is you have a bitter wife and you have children who have gone to the dogs spiritually, I think it's because their pastor did a job instead of loving the church. For a long time, I've thought about Abraham as the scripture says he was, he was on a journey and he was looking for a city whose... Mm -hmm whose builder and architect was God. Mm -hmm. And finally, when the Bible describes the bride of Christ in Revelation coming down out of heaven, she is the city that Abraham was looking for with that architectural stamp. And it's, I think it should be our desire as Christians to find the, the prince of that architect's work on the, on the churches that we attend. We should desire to see evidence of, of God's architectural 
stamp on the churches we attend. We should desire to be in churches that are like that. We should be Christians who desire that as a church. Yeah, every time we talk about the church, you know, you were talking about the devotions and how it shows the affection of the first Christians. And every time we talk about this stuff, I'm always so aware of how many people their hearts will yearn for this. I just mm-hmm. got a text from a guy who is in a rural area in the South, and he was saying that there's nothing within an hour of where he and his wife live. And I think so many people, their hearts yearn for anything approximating what they hear us talking about. I mean, obviously, when we sit here and talk, people can sense, I hope, our love for each other. Mm-hmm. And then they think, and they talk truth. And when have I ever seen a church that both has love and truth? And isn't that the relentless theme we hear from people that come here for IU and then leave and, and you know get hired someplace, and, and, and they always have to choose between truth and love. Mm-hmm. And the churches that do love don't do truth, and the churches that do truth don't do intimacy and love. And so I don't know how to respond to the people listening when they listen to us talk it's obvious that we have a love life. <laughs> and I don't want to discourage people by that, but I find that often hearing somebody declare the truth, hearing somebody describe the good, is enough comfort for me when I don't have it, that, I, that at least I know it exists. So I'm hoping that we won't discourage people by the way we're talking about the church. You know, Does that make any sense? It does. I sort of want to push back a little bit, though, because as Max was talking, I was just imagining a lot of listeners are probably thinking, easy for you to say, you've got it. Meanwhile, I'm going to, I'm in an area without a good church or with a lukewarm church or with a church that doesn't practice good things or doesn't believe good things or doesn't love me the way it should or doesn't love my children. I'm sure many people are thinking that right now. We got started with talking about love, and the Bible says the man who doesn't love his brother, doesn't. the love of God is not in him. And what you're responsible for, wherever you are, is not simply sitting in judgment on the people of God that he's placed around you, Mm. but loving the people of God, no matter what you see to be the flaws of your church or the weaknesses of your church, you have a responsibility to love those people and to love that church and to do your best to help that church grow in godliness and in love and in its ability to speak the truth. Be the architect's stamp. Yeah. On the church where you are. I just, I don't want to open that door up and make space for people who actually just want to sit and be bitter about the imperfections of their churches, but don't want to, you know, who may be listening to this podcast in order to feel validated in their lack of love for the people of God, because no church is perfect. There's a man that goes to one of the churches in Evangel Presbytery, it's up in India, and this man has a wife who is uh, entering, not senility, but Alzheimer's. She has, she forgets things, and so she's vulnerable. And I was up there recently on a Sunday, and sitting in Sunday school and watching that man with his wife was absolutely gorgeous, drop-dead gorgeous. And the reason is his tender solicitude to his wife publicly in her weakness. And so when we talk about the church and, and, and her glory, her dignity, her necessity, and then we see where that is lacking, that is the place 
where love is most proven. What God has given to me and to you, Max, at this point in our lives as we're a little bit older, what people have to understand is that the fruit of these later years that we have has, has been unbelievably difficult, has involved the most intense pain, the most intense betrayals. And I tell people, the first church I went into, shortly after I left there, there was a dude in that church. He was an elder, 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 an elder. And that man would set his watch every Sunday for noon and have it go off prominently. He's in the second row up front. And it would go beep, 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 because he wanted to interrupt my sermon at its end. And so he would do it. He'd also put two pennies in his envelope with his number and name on it every single Sunday and make the treasurer count, open it up and count his two pennies. So finally, one of the elders asked him why he did that. And he said, well, because I want everybody to know I don't give two cents for what the preacher says. Not two cents. Well, actually, I thought he was he actually giving two, cents. giving two cents, you know. <laughs> and that man, shortly after I left that town, he was arrested for streaking on Main Street. He was in his 60s. And then a few years later, he was arrested for being a part of a, of a heroin ring. And so what do people think are the churches that we love and that we have loved? And, and you know, I think about this church, and I think of it coming out of an, an incredibly nasty conflict where there was an elder, one of the two patriarchs of the church, going around taking people out to lunch and sitting down with them as couples and telling them that I had embezzled money from a bank or from a pastor's ministerial fund up in Wisconsin before I moved to Bloomington, you know? I think an awful lot of times when we complain that we don't have a church we can love, I think it's because we don't love our church. The church has never been anything other than dirty. That's why we needed Jesus. And those people who came clean to him, he kicked out. He said, I'm not here for the clean. I have sympathy knowing the blessings that we have in our church for those who are an hour from what you know they say is a good church. Yeah, but I I always love to bring up with people who are complaining. What was what do you, what exactly do you think the church at Corinth mm. was like? You know, go back and read Paul's letters to the Corinthians about a man who has his father's wife and all the other sins that they're dealing with in those churches, and then read all the things that he says about those churches in praise of them. At the same time, you've been washed. Mm. The truth is in you. There's all kinds of beautiful statements like that. And yet also this, all these bloody messes mm. in the heart of these churches. And, you know, why is he writing? Well, you know, he's got to deal with heresy at the heart of the church. That's why he's got to deal with moral s failure all over the place, left and right at the heart of it. He has to deal with both at the same time. Intellectual snobbery. Yeah, all kinds of stuff Incest. like that. Yeah. But these are churches. The, this is who Jesus died for. Listen, if anybody listening has not read the beginning of book four of the Institutes, it is the second most devotional part of the Institutes. Nobody will have trouble reading it. It's my and favorite. It's just unbelievably beautiful because, you know, Jake, basically, he just opens up what you just said yep. about Corinth. Yep. Yeah, he does. And he also, I think, does the wonderful thing of walking through Hebrews 11 as well and talking about all of the heroes of the faith that are listed there and all of their sins. 
that follow them and yet that's in that, that section i'm pretty sure that's in that section because that's too. my most inspirational part of the yeah. institutes but i thought it came at the beginning well he <clears throat> he tends to come back around to different things from time to time i'm pretty sure that's in book four uh, the other thing that i i really love about book four i mean there are lots there's lots to love about book four but one of the things that i love is when he gets to talking about sin and apostasy and discipline and and how how difficult it is in your church because you'll have people who have these horrible sins. You'll have to discipline mm-hmm. them, but you'll mm-hmm. be convinced that these people love Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there will also be people in your church that you know, you're convinced they're hypocrites. You got nothing on them. <laughs> Starting with yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but this is the beauty of, this is the 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 glorious mess that is the church. Yeah. This is just what we all are. We're, we're all just, it's that bad. And that's what makes it that beautiful because of the grace of God to cover all our sins, all of those who are in Christ. And to use the church, to use sinful fallen men in the midst of it, to build her up into something beautiful, to wash her clean with the word of God. And with the Lord's Supper. I always have that picture of the sins in front of us as we administer the Lord's Supper, Mm -hmm. you know, and and just the 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 relentless nature of the Lord's Supper coming, 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 is such a beautiful image. I don't think people should celebrate weekly communion because of some notion they have of of what the reformers this that and the other thing, but I do think that frequent communion is so helpful for us who see the sins in our hearts and in the heart of the church and then see the people coming and eating the body and drinking the blood of our Lord spiritually. It's such a beautiful picture of the washing that we need from Jesus. Yeah, when the table is there regularly and properly fenced, weighted with the fear of God, it's a powerful thing to to lead you both to confession of sin, to real repentance and real, real joy, fellowship, and community. Mm-hmm. It, I, I find that the, having communion frequently is only cheapened when it's cheapened and how it's presented. When there's no warning. When there's no warning, there's no, there's no way of God. to it. It's just it. joy, joy, joy. It's happy, clappy. Yeah. What is, what's reasonable for people to expect? In other words, we've been talking about how people should be toward their church or toward the church, but what is reasonable for them to expect when they're going to their church or looking for a church? Well, we published a book that I think does a good job of getting down to brass tacks, not being flaky and schismatic, but giving the essential, you know, what Jake was talking about at the beginning here. They were continually devoting themselves to four things, the teaching of the apostles, fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. And I think we have to go back to basics and reform the church and how we administer the Lord's Supper, how we preach, how we pray, and how we have fellowship. Obviously, the book isn't here. We can't read the book. But I do want people to know, I think it's very helpful as a book in causing us to not be schismatic, to not be nitpicking, but to go back and recover what the reformers recovered at the time of the Reformation. We need another reformation of the church. We all think we're doing what we should be doing, and we don't, have, we don't even pray in our services anymore. There's no authority in the pulpit. There's no warning at the Lord's table, and our fellowship can't tolerate people confessing sins. And that's basically the, the, the summary of the book. 
And what we have to do is repent and, and, and work with Christ to sanctify his bride. It's worth working to sanctify the bride of Christ. While we're thinking of it, let's just go ahead and give the pitch here. It's called Church Reformed. It's by Tim Bailey, and you can actually get it for any amount of money right now, right, Jake? Yeah, we're going to give the book away for the month of October for any one-time donation at warhornmedia.com. We want you guys to have this book and to read it. Get a digital copy yep. in your favorite digital format. And it yep. is good. It's a very simple book. It's descriptive, I want to say. Like, it just lays out what a good church should be. And, and then it talks about a couple of errors and pitfalls. Okay, so the errors are hypocrisy, right. hatred of discernment, right. naivete. And counting the numbers, playing the numbers game and stuff. So, in other words, in the beginning, it deals with the four devotions mm -hmm. and deals with errors having to do with how we pray, mm -hmm. how we have fellowship, how we preach, teach, and how we do the Lord's Supper. It and also this, deals with baptism and church membership. Absolutely. Yupper. And that's the part people will feel they're on a choke chain getting yep. yanked on. That's where they tend to trip up we've yeah. uh, we've found yeah. not to our surprise but <laughs> but that's why i wrote it for heaven's sake that's right it is, it is so simple and it is when i said it was descriptive it's like it's descriptive but you can't help to be descriptive is to be prescriptive with this sort of thing like yeah. if, if you're describing what a healthy person looks like in a land of nothing but six people you can't help but be prescriptive yeah, like, in the description. You know the saying, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Mm -hmm. I like to say that when it comes to the pastor's job of teaching and preaching truth in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is a monster. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's about all we rise to the level of today. Uh, those of us who, who teach and preach is being one-eyed. Mm -hmm. And I think that's all that the, 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 the book aims at is just trying to get us to open maybe one eye. <laughs> it seems like all of these things, though, are connected to what people do with sin. If yeah. you go to the yeah. church, if you go to church, isn't it some small degree, aren't you motivated because you don't know what to do with your sin? Mm -hmm. With your conscience. Yeah. And so if you go to a church, then you expect that church to actually address in some way sin, your sin. Yep. If you're there for to watch the church address everybody else's sin, <laughs> you got a problem. And so does the church because they don't know what to do with you. Yep. But we go to the church because we want the church to speak to us and to see us to be reconciled to God. Mm -hmm. And we have the sin problem. And I wonder, as you think about people going to church, it seems like to me, even in the book, it's it's constantly right behind everything. I think you even used the the woman who came to our church on the Sunday yeah, in, yeah, as yeah. one of the examples. Yes. You want to talk about that? Well, <laughs> yeah. So one of the most difficult things that churches have is, is when they have pastors and elders who fall into sin and have to be dealt with. We had uh, an elder who confessed sins, and so after the elders and pastors had worked with him, and he was very, very submissive and teachable, leadable, <laughs> if there is such a word, the time came that we had to announce to the congregation, because if, you're, if, if a man is under censure and is, he's, he's called to leave office, you know, he has to be removed from office, that has to be announced to the flock that have put him in a position of authority and look to him spiritually. So the time comes, you have to announce it to the congregation, so the elders carefully craft a statement that is not untruthful. 
you you have to be truthful to a congregation. I mean, you know. <laughs> We're going to talk about some serious sin here. This yes, morning. yeah, yeah. And so this statement is read, and of course, you always have visitors in our church, and when that kind of thing gets read, and I don't remember my my recollection is the specifics were actually given, not the names, but the specifics, and it is about the worst thing that you would want to give the specifics about. But it was given in the sense of he has confessed, he, we have removed him from office, we are under the authority of external pastors and elders who will hold us accountable for treating this faithfully. He's, he's no longer an elder. And of course, you know, he and his wife are, are un, you know, unbelievably loved and central to the church. Anyhow, after the sermon, I go to the door of the church and always greet everybody as they leave. I think that's important that we do it. And I'm standing at the door and all of a sudden, this, <laughs> this, this young pretty woman comes running at me. I mean, she literally was, well, maybe not actually running, but I mean, she was making a beeline for me and she comes up to me and she says, I'm just so excited. And she has her hands up in the air. I am so excited that we were here this morning. I've never seen her in my life. I have no idea who this woman is. And I'm thinking, what on earth? What on earth is she saying? She's excited. <laughs> you know, and I was sitting there trying to keep my mouth shut. And she said, I was just saying to my husband last night, we need to find a church where there are real sinners. And then we came here today. And I just, I remember, <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to think. I didn't know what to feel. I was happy she was happy, you know. <laughs> and the joy of them being in the church. Oh, yeah. Sense. They just, oh, my goodness. And, and you know, nobody in their right mind would ever come up with, you know, you imagine Tim Keller going to his network of Redeemer churches and giving that story and saying that's his church growth strategy in Manhattan. I mean, nobody in their right mind would tell that story as, as sort of illustrative of different techniques of church growth. And yet God used the church. And how many people are out there thinking to themselves, I wish I could find a church that has real sinners in it, well, so that I could sake. so that I could be honest when I get there about my own life. I recall a certain church growth strategy in Scripture where two people were disciplined to death by God Himself, and it explicitly it explicitly says it. it connects it to people being to added growth. to their number. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> It says people were scared out of their wits to come to that church. And people were, yeah, exactly. And doesn't the Bible say God's ways are subordinate to our ways? Yeah. But that was yeah. probably stupid. That's not how it actually yeah. works. Yeah. In Can I drive it back to the original question? Because there's an aspect of that original question, what should our relationship with the church be, mm -hmm. that I don't think we nailed down. I think it was implicit in the discussion of loving the church, but I think it needs to be nailed down. Assuming that a lot of the people listening either are or aspire to be fathers and mothers of children, the one thing that you must, absolutely must demonstrate to your children is that the church comes before them. Before the children specifically? Absolutely. And I think this is one of the most dangerous things in the Reformed Church today, in the conservative Christian church, 
is that I think we're raising children who think that they're the cat's meow, and they think that uh, they matter to their parents more than Jesus Christ and the bride of Christ, the church, and the people of the church. And I see this constantly. When I visit churches, when I correspond with people, uh, there's just this assumption that in the latter part of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, what is really needed today is a recovery of family values. And by that, they mean homeschooling, the father is patriarch, beards, lacy dresses, long hair, I don't know, large families, all this stuff. Now, I'm not against these things, but people always think I'm against them because I'm constantly relegating them. And every sermon I give, every time I counsel people, you must not replace the church of Jesus Christ with the idol of the family. And in the book, we deal with that by saying, actually, blood isn't as thick as water, meaning the waters of baptism. Our kids are going to grow up. When they grow up, we're going to face, in our recovery of love for the home, our recovery of male headship, our recovery of be fruitful marriage beds, of all those goody things, right? In our recovery of them, it is extremely easy to become guilty of the idolatry of the family. And I know that people take umbrage at me saying that because that's often used by gays and LGBTQ people and liberals. It takes a village, all those people, to say, we shouldn't have idolatry of the family. Well, what they mean by idolatry of the family is just basic Christian doctrine, okay? But now I'm talking about something different, which is where the church is relegated under the family where the waters of baptism are relegated by the thickness of blood, of, of blood relationships. Where and, you have family-centered churches instead of church-centered families. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. What does that look like? What does that actually look like? Yeah, somebody wise once said something like, unless you hate your father and mother and sister and brother, you cannot be my disciple. And I think it starts right there. Yeah, why would Jesus say that, Jake? Because what relationships most threatened to stand between us and God, most us in repentance of sin. Because Job's wife said, curse God and die. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, Because, because that's Christian what... had to p plug his ears and scream and life, life, eternal well, uh, life while running out of the city. In Pilgrim's Progress. Yeah. yeah. Because the man said, let me go bury my father. And Jesus, since he was such a sort of velveteen rabbit, Pat the Bunny kind of guy, he said, Sure, you go sure, do that. you go do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the people that don't know it, somebody tell them what he actually said. Let the dead bury their own dead. Yeah. So what's the extreme family that you've seen? We've seen a model of extreme family that's well, we actually have... beyond competition to the church. It is actually fright frightening. Little cult of the father, oh, yeah. sort of thing, isolate you from absolutely everyone and everything. And dad knows everything has to be processed through dad. That goes on for generations. Yeah. And and listen, those people who have a tendency, if they become convinced of the good of the church, have a tendency to expect the church to tell them everything to do. Hmm. I think one of the things that we do most often. Somebody said recently that the comparison between what we do here with Warhorn and with preaching and stuff is different from another place, which I won't name, because at that place, you are told what to think, whereas here, 
we're always trying to get you to think. And yeah. so you'll have people in pastoral meetings, all of us, where they'll ask us, you know, what they should do about this, where they should go here, what our recommendations are about this. And we're constantly saying, look, we we don't make that decision. That's your decision. Here are yeah. some principles. Go yeah. ahead. Well, I, if you think about how much Christian media is out there that you listen to or are attempted to listen to just so that you can be validated in what mm -hmm. you think and feel and believe. I feel bad about this. I'm going to turn on somebody who's going to sound super hardcore and mm -hmm. I'm going to feel validated because- Abortion is evil. They're my mm -hmm. hardcore hero that mm -hmm. I can, yeah, that's, that is what those people want then from, from the church is just to be- A meme. Yeah. The church can be the meme. Yeah. Validate me, validate me, validate me, validate me. Tell me what to do, tell me what to think. Be sure, and I will pick the person to follow that lines up with what I already think anyway, so I can be validated, but validate me. And what all we want people to do is to have faith, to live in the tension of life's not clean. This is a sinful world. You've got to exercise wisdom and you have to live by faith. Yes, not by dependency on leaders. My dad always yep. used to say that a good leader cultivates independence on the part of the people he leads. Absolutely. And that is so unheard of today. Most conservative reform leadership is cultivating dependence. Yep. They're cultivating people's trust in them, people depending upon them to give the proper thoughts about absolutely everything. Yep. And so when we talk about these homes, David, Max, that you mentioned where it's far beyond having an inappropriate value of the home, but it's to the point where the father really is God. Yep. And I'm telling you, in way too many of those homes, there is incest and mm -hmm. abuse. Mm -hmm. Once you get to the point where you're so proud of your husband, and I would say it's actually more common that the wife has propped him in that position and cultivates the kind of daddy worship in her family that makes her feel pious and submissive, yep. right? Yep, absolutely. It, it's just, it, it is a horrible thing. And so many people think that that's what we teach and what we believe in, and they've never been here. They, they don't know any of our kids. They know our kids, you know? I remember with Taylor, when he, when he graduates, that instant, Mary Lee has him out of our home. We drive him up to India and he's gone. And she was waiting for that moment because why? Well, she knew that that was going to be a wake-up call to that young man to begin to follow God. Yeah, we could have a, a cult of personality if we had personality, but we don't have any. So, <laughs> <laughs> so are those fathers... In those situations, is that a personality cult? And we think about some churches and some pastors. No, I don't as think it a is a personality cult. cult. No, it. Yeah, I think often there is. I think actually, what it is is it's a patriarchy cult. Mm -hmm. And if you think about how a patriarchy cult will trade on the blessing of fatherhood, the authority of fatherhood, the headship of the husband over the wife the wife called to submit, the children called to obey, the fruitfulness of the marriage bed, the dignity and joy of work, uh, the necessity of worship, the necessity of calling our families to worship alongside with us. You can see how all these things add up to 
a cult of patriarchy. And nobody's going to argue against that until they realize that when we say a cult of patriarchy, what we're really saying is a cult of the nuclear family. Mm. Okay? And that is not biblical. Everybody, I had somebody say this to me the other day. Everybody says that that the, the man's house is his castle. And my wife, her parents, and my parents decimated that as we were growing up because we had all kinds of mongrels and mutts living with us, uh, bedraggled people, and then they were invited to our house. Our house was the center of ministry. The home is not to be a place that cultivates the pride of the father and the mother. It's destructive. It's so destructive. The home is to be a sub-center of ministry, building the church by having little household churches that bring in the bedraggled and, and love them and care for them. So is patriarchy good? It doesn't matter if it's good or not. It's the way God's ordered the world. But we don't need people today in the, the reformed patriarchy. Oh, it's just awful to. because they inevitably pervert it. I can almost predict that those homes where they have some romantic notion of patriarchy are not led by the man, but led by the woman. Hmm. I, I mean, honestly, I'm not being cynical in saying this. Yeah. The fact is a lot of these families and homes are constructed out of thin air by people who are repenting of something to begin yeah, with, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. So they've never seen a healthy, they, these are abused women or they're broken homes or they're whatever, and they're people who are desperately trying to exercise control over their homes in such a way to keep themselves and their husbands and their children from repeating the sins safe. of their past. Well, and safe. And safe, that's right. That's the highest and so value. If, if we just find the biblical formula, Mm-hmm. and we apply it in the most rigid way possible, then God owes it to us to keep us safe and we can keep control over everything if we just do it the right way, vending machine way, but you've never seen it done the right way, so you construct this sort of monstrosity of a thing that mm-hmm. nobody who is from a healthy home would ever recognize as mm-hmm. being healthy. Nobody in, in church history would recognize as being Healthy. It's an environment for all of the the real threat to just run rampant. Exactly. And the real threat is the sin inside. Yes. Exactly. Sin inside. exactly yes. right. The sin inside dad. Yep. The Abs. sin inside mom. The sin inside every Son one and of daughter. the children. That's right. Just can run rampant in that place. Will unrestrained. Not can will. And I I believe that because of the pride of the Corinthian church, that that's the epistle where incest is dealt with. And I believe the same thing is rampant in the conservative reform world. We're proud and we're particularly proud about our homes, about our curriculums, about our pursuit of the truth, truth, goodness, and beauty, or truth, beauty, and goodness. And I believe that this is a smoking cauldron of opportunity for the worst kinds of sexual sins. And we in this room know we deal with this in conservative churches all the time, Mm -hmm. where pastors come to us for help. And it's horrible what goes on. And I believe that nothing is more finely tuned to humble a group of people than incest and and the abuse of children. Well, and it's pride, and it's also with it, it's faithlessness. It's just this desire. Everybody wants to exercise all of their discernment up front so they never have to exercise it again, you know? (laughs) So if I just sort of up front (laughs) pick the right 
side. Uh, yeah. Of an issue. Yeah. yeah. If I pick the right side of an issue, if I pick pick the right style of education, mm-hmm. then boom, that's it. I don't have to think yeah. about- It's te- Phil Gothard all Yeah. I don't have again. to think about <laughs> teaching, uh, being discerning about the program because I've picked yeah. the perfect program. I don't have to think about being discerning within my household and actually raising my children by faith because we've got the right model and of when how we to do see, home. And when we see what actually happens in these pristine, preening- Conservative reform patriarchies, like for instance Doug Phillips. Yep, it's amazing how quickly people can forget what just happened with Doug Phillips. Yep, and it's like we don't need posers. Mm-hmm. What we need is the church, and we need families that are convinced that if the church doesn't do her work in their family, that their family's going to go to the dogs spiritually in every way. And instead, what we end up with is families that protect the family from the church. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the thing is like, okay, you've come from a broken home or from an abusive home, right? So you're going to like, you are going to be the one who figures out what healthy looks like all by yourself and protect your family from everybody else. Instead, what you really need is to come be a part of a healthy church family where God is the father where you, there are fathers and mothers in the church that love you and model good fatherhood and good motherhood that have good and healthy homes that, because you can't just catch these things from a book. You can't catch them from assembling it piecemeal from, from the Bible yourself. If you're broken, you know, here, make bricks without straw. That's what you're doing. But if you come to the church humbly, to the family of God, that's how you can be healed. That's how yeah, you can catch and, what healthy. Yes. And the first thing that you will catch is that there is no good marriage that doesn't fight. Yep. There are no children who don't have to be commanded to obey their parents. There's no mother who is not an insecure and jealous woman. And often a shrew, there's no man who isn't a lazy dog. In other words, mm-hmm. when when you show them health. The first thing that's going to shock them is how prevalent sin is in that health and how philosophical everybody in the home is about each other's sin, forgiving and being forgiven. That's the one thing these people will never do. They'll never never cop to sin and they'll never need to be forgiven and they'll never forgive. Well, that's to admit failure and it all unravels then. It it Uh, does inevitably, but it doesn't unravel until the mother's claws are finally pried out of the life of her oldest children. And then it goes kaput. A good picture of this recently, we did a marriage class and we had 15 couples in the class and we dealt with- What church was The same subjects. It was when you were on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, I don't think I knew about that. (laughs) We dealt with the same subjects that we deal with in premarital counseling. But Uh in premarital, premarital counseling, nobody has a clue. Right, <laughs> but now all these people have been married for now a while. That be true, and and so and after they've been married and they're sitting there, that's one of the most enjoyable and helpful yeah, things yeah, about yeah, the yeah. class because when somebody brings something up, yeah. like a wave, it's laughter. It's yeah, yeah. The, the heads are nodding. Yeah. There's clapping. The There's guys are elbowing. saying this. The <laughs> ladies are saying this. But it is together <laughs> that we realize. We're all fighting against sin. We're all struggling against sin, and we're not weird. Yeah. And we all realize that God is saving us. Day by day. Day by day. Day by day. The reason I've been 
laughing over here is I remember the story. One of our elders and his wife, they're now missionaries, but Grant and Deb Olson told the story of how when they first got married, they immediately went to Campus Crusade staff training. Mm -hmm. And they said they'd go back to their room at night and they would fight. And then they'd come out the next morning. There were a number of other people who just gotten married too, right, right before going on staff. Mm. And those other people would just be smiling blissfully, you know, <laughs> and everything was copacetic. Everything was wonderful, was wonderful. So and so finally, Deb, and you can imagine Deb doing this, Deb looked at some of the other people there and, and she, you know, she'd quietly say to the newlywed wife, have you hit the wall yet? And she said, <laughs> other people look at him and say, what wall? <laughs> you know, which of course would demoralize her and Grant more because they'd hit the wall. You know? <laughs> oh, I like what Chesterton says. He says, well, marriage is the joining together of two mutually incompatible forces, man and woman. He says, the question isn't whether it will be a quarrel. It will be. The question is, can you keep it a lover's quarrel? Mm -hmm. And I find that people that have grown up being abused, having divorced parents, with no model of anything approximating a biblical marriage and family life, one of the, the most debilitating parts of that is that they do not know that because they fight and because they fail, it's actually not negative. And it's not an indication they're going to get divorced. In other words, they don't have the resilience and faith mm -hmm. to deal with sin and failure. And I think the best Christian homes are very aware of sin and failure on the part of everybody. Conflict. It has to Broad have conflict. category yeah. for our homes, our marriages, the church. Just the processing of conflict, because we're sinners, we're going to have conflict. And the funny thing about those homes you were talking about, Max, is that they're not lacking in conflict, the ones that have called of the father, right? Mm -hmm. And the frilly things and the curriculum and all that stuff. Their conflict is always with other families that they're parsing according to their rigid doctrinaire legalism. And so they're constantly cutting themselves off from this church and this church from this Christian family, from this Christian family, because they would think they're on a truth mission. But what they all really are on is a cult mission of conformity and lying about their sin. And they require everybody else to lie about their sin also, or they'll cut them off. And we see that when they come in the church. The minute anybody in the church points out that one of their little boys is a disrespectful snot, starting with his own mother, they leave the church. And it's because to them, the church exists to prop them up. And instead, they should be delighted that there are other Christians that are willing to say things about their home that they're too scared to say themselves. Yeah, the end of that, it, it's hard for, for us to imagine when we have those thoughts about ourselves. The end of that is death. It's the death of our homes. It's the death of our marriages. It's the death of our children. It's spiritual death because... What we're not, we're not seeking anything good there. All, you know, we're, trying, we're not building anything good. And so the further we go along in, in our desire to what look good and the facade that we have to keep. Yeah, but none of those up, people ever, ever, ever will admit that they're building a facade. And what they tell themselves is everybody else before us has gotten it wrong. 
but we've read and we've prayed and we've gotten it right. And so they will, until they walk over the cliff, they will sell the path. And then when the cliff comes, there will be no restoring them because they've left the church, they've judged everybody else, they're alone, they're out in their agrarian homestead raising chickens that don't have, who knows what chickens don't have, you know, free range. You know, as, as I have observed, discipline that's been done in our church, and especially form, formal discipline, my observation is that there are two responses on the part of someone being disciplined. One is that they admit and see their sin. They blame themselves. But they self they self yeah they self accuse that's exactly it. The other group, as I've observed, go out, and everything that they do from that point on is to accuse the church. Mm-hmm. The church was wrong. The church was wrong. The church was wrong. Mm-hmm. And and the church is often, often wrong. wrong. Yeah. We say in our elders meetings that there's no case of church discipline. That when we begin to work on it. Our sins as elders and pastors aren't added to the pool of whatever is being dealt with in the home or marriage, but go on. No, I just think that this is part of that facade. I think people who typically have approached the church not looking for her to help them deal with their sins, but thinking that they could present themselves as something that they're not, thinking that they could compete in the good housekeeping contest or whatever contest it is that when they come to a certain point and they realize they can't, everything falls down, they go over the cliff, as you say, and then what's left? How many times have a we A common seen enemy. It? Yeah, common because enemy. Because what happens, I mean, how these, I think these marriages work is you have two people that are already committed to believing the best about themselves. They get married. Mutual admiration. Well, yeah, and then, you know, there's sin and conflict suddenly that comes out, and who are they going to blame? Well, they're either going to blame themselves. They're going to blame each other. They're going to find a, a common enemy mm-hmm. to blame together that allows them to band together mm-hmm. and preserve their marriage because they, they don't have it in them to blame themselves. They have it in them to blame each other, mm-hmm. but they're sort of looking at that and then making a decision. We need a common enemy. And so it's going to be the other people outside that also help expose that same sin, like a spouse helps expose your sin, like yes. your children help expose. But in family units, all that is still true. The whole family, mom and dad lead it, but the Absolutely. whole family is presenting themselves in that way. Yeah. And so when they- We're all in a big conspiracy yeah. to have- Listen, I'm 65, and at 65, you've seen some things, okay? And I will say that there is nothing that is more certain to create a healthy family, a healthy marriage, and godly children- who will take over the responsibility of serving the churches, her shepherds, and her her Titus too. There's nothing more certain than that, than growing up in a home where the church is loved more than the household, and where the household is relegated under the church. And this is one of the most serious issues. You can depend upon the children as they grow up and their sins become visible in the church. You can depend upon that church to point those sins out to that child and to their parents. And you can absolutely set your watch by the fact that those parents will be grateful and will never attack the people that are trying to help them. That is the best way of having a godly, healthy, happy home. 
The church is the solution to the home. The home isn't the, the solution to the church. That's why Jesus relegated it mm-hmm. and warns about the idolatry. And what is idolatry but loving your father and your mother and your children more th- and your wife more than you love God? And so I once had somebody say that they felt that the best predictor of spiritual maturity in any individual is a long-time membership in a particular church. Mm-hmm. And I have relatives, I mean, they jump, they jump, and oh, man, they they just made a mistake, but now they're going to jump again, and this is going to be right. And it's just, the central fact about them is that everybody else is the problem. The problem is never them. People that exist to promote their own pride are people that God resists. God resists the proud. And... I've learned over the years, there is no way of opening a proud man's eyes, especially if that proud man is being propped up by a prouder woman who is his wife. I was thinking of something as you were talking about the the position of the church, and this isn't something I would say everyone else to do, but for myself, my granddaughter was just baptized this past Sunday, and I have a kind of self-policing that I never baptized any of my children or my grandchildren. Really? And the reason why is because I want them not to look at Mm -hmm. dad or granddad when they come out of the water. I don't want dad and granddad to charge them at their baptism because it's not me. And I don't want them to be confused about it. Hmm. I want them to understand that this, they are now the churches, that they belong to the church in such a, such a way as to, to realize that, of course, your parents, your grandparents are always going to be there if they're believers and they're in the same church that you're in. They're going to be there and they're going to be part of the what mediation and continued growth of your life. That's mm-hmm. That should be. But your orientation should be, I belong to the church. Our children should say, God first, the church first. And then my my parents, just like we should say God first and our family, right? And so- Can uh, I defend you for a second? Because I've done some of my grandchildren. You know, I don't mind. Baptized. I think hold that's on, hold good. On. Go ahead. What I want to do is let people know, I didn't know that this was your policy, but look, we don't teach you what to think. We teach you how to think. What you have to see in this because I imagine a bunch of people here have had their dad as a pastor or something, and they're feeling all offended that, well, you know. I now, thought I gave a preface there. You did. <laughs> but I want to say this is the kind of thing that the church needs to have, a big spirit and the ability of challenging each. So what you just said challenges me. And it's very interesting. That's how we want you to approach the things we're saying in these podcasts is Take the principles and suspect that maybe Max has more wisdom than Tim has. Now, I'm not saying that Max is right and I'm wrong or I'm right and Max is wrong, but this is the kind of attitude that I hope we have, that we're not just rigid and condemning somebody that doesn't see things the way we have. We don't want anybody listening to this podcast who's looking for us to tell them what to think, but we do want you to think.
Then Comes What was produced by Nathan Alberson, executive produced like all fine Warhorn products by Jacob Pencil and Nathan Alberson. You can send your questions for us to tcw at warhornmedia.com. That's tcw at warhornmedia.com. Please send us your questions. We would like to answer them. 